Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Nasheed Madhuan is on a mission to help Floridians make sense of the state. Meduin's the executive director of Florida Humanities, the nonprofit that promotes and shares the history, culture, and stories of Florida. It was founded 50 years ago, not long after the creation of the National Endowment for the Humanities, and to commemorate its golden anniversary, Florida Humanities has a new book out, Once Upon a Time in Florida, a collection of essays from its magazine called Forum. Today, we sit down with Nasheed Meduin and Jackie Levine, the editor of Once Upon a Time in Florida, to talk about what went into the creation of this book. We'll talk about what Florida stereotypes are wrong, how much we don't know about this vast, complex state, and how the humanities can provide a more complete picture of Florida during a time of rapid change. And we'll hear from some of the contributors to Once Upon a Time in Florida, including NPR TV and film critic Eric Diggins, who talks about how the stylized image of Florida in shows like Miami Vice affects the way others see the state and how we see ourselves. Nishida, I want to start with you. The Florida Humanities is 50 years old. Uh, The National Endowment of the Humanities isn't that much older, but tell us a little bit more about the mission of your organization. In the 1960s, if you're familiar with the unrest there, however you approach it, the United States saw fit to craft an opportunity for the Americans and the international world to understand what great a society we live in. As a matter of fact, the initial great society out of Lyndon B. Johnson's presidency uh, allowed for the NEH, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Arts to be formed. That was 65. And as you can imagine, telling the story in someone's backyard can be hard. So mm-hmm. nonprofits, individual councils across the country were set up to do the work of the NEA and NEH. Florida Humanities started uh, approximately eight to ten years after that, 1973, and the objective was to capture and tell the story of Florida. Nasheed, you're not a native Floridian, but you are a lifelong Southerner. What do you think are some of the preconceived ideas people outside the state have of Florida? I think Florida has been the unlikely, unfortunate recipient of a keen interest in sensationalism. And Florida has a wonderful, rich treasure of Pulitzer Prize winning writers and wonderful artists, great music and musicians and crafts. And in an aggregate manner, it collects the ethnic diversity of the United States, and you find it in these regions of Florida. But because of popular culture, I believe that Florida doesn't get its just due. You note in the foreword to Once Upon a Time in Florida that the goal of the Florida Humanities is to help Floridians understand their home state. I'm wondering what stands out for you about this collection and what it illustrates about this state and the part that Florida Humanities plays in shaping the way we Floridians see ourselves. I think that a good takeaway from this collection is that if you want to paint a picture of the United States, this American tapestry, something that's woven together from different backgrounds and times and generation, you can have a great example of what that means, that growth, that dream in Florida. You have a decade in which Florida was Spanish, then English, then Spanish. You have decades where the population of Florida 
was at the bottom of this list of 50. Now we are just behind Texas and California. We've surpassed New York and everything that comes with that. And this book represents the Native American story, the Cuban story, the political travesty of the 60s and Jim Crow. All of that can be captured in this growth, this evolution of Florida. Jackie, I want to bring you into this conversation. You're very familiar with the more recent stories in Florida. You've been a journalist here since the 1980s and served as editor of Forum magazine. That's the magazine of the Florida Humanities from 2017 to 2021. What was it like to try to pull together this comprehensive anthology? I mean, Nasheed mentioned a thousand plus stories. How do you try and put that together to make sure you tell the complete story of Florida in just 50 articles? One advantage I had was that I was very excited to do it because I would go into the archives. I would find stories that were so compelling and interesting and surprising that I really felt that they needed to be shown the light of day again. So when it came time to start this project, I went in with probably a little over-optimism in terms of how easy it would be and, and just the sheer joy of the project. It was a very joyful project, but it was a big task because there were so many stories. From the beginning, we didn't know exactly how we were going to present this. The more I looked at it, the more I thought, you know what, this is the 50th anniversary of Florida Humanities. People need to know a story about Florida. I picked out the ones that just really struck me, which was difficult because almost all of them did. Mm -hmm. And then I started categorizing them and I ended up putting them into seven different sections and it's both chronological and also thematic. Mm -hmm. So we start at the beginning 14,000 years ago with the first Floridians and looking at how they survived and thrived and adjusted all the way through the present. So it wouldn't have been enough to just kind of go from the very earliest history of the first Floridians in a chronological fashion because it's kind of a complex state. You had to do that thematic arrangement as well to help people try and kind of get to grasp with this vast, sprawling state. That's exactly right because I think if there's a theme in my head is how surprising the state is. I think depending upon where we're from in Florida, it's like many different states. Mm -hmm. And we sort of are presented in a way stereotypes. I'm from South Florida. You know, so my vision of Florida is quite different from someone who is from the panhandle, perhaps. Right. Um, we all come from different ethnicities, different parts of the world. It's a state full of immigrants. So what I discovered is just the richness and the diversity of the state and the stories that we might not know that needed to be told. Let me just read something that you write in the introduction to this collection, Jackie. You say, what it illustrates from the beginning is a state with an innate wildness some take for beauty and others chaos, inhabited for thousands of years by the earliest and most resilient Floridians before being discovered, in inverted commas, and subsequently idealized, exploited, demonized, drained, paved over, longed for, adored, mocked, and in some cases loved to death. I mean, to me, that sums up the contradictory nature of the state. I'm wondering, is what do you hope readers take away from this volume? You know, what I hope they take away from it is this complexity of the state and that it's not one thing and that you can look at a state with both love and a critical eye. 
you can love it like you would a family member. One reviewer said it was a love letter to Florida, which it is in some ways, but it's a love letter you would write to a family member who you see their flaws and you see their wonderful gifts as opposed to someone you're infatuated with. Mm -hmm. So that's what I hope, that people understand that Florida is deep and rich and valuable, and it's not just something to be exploited. It's not just something that people are drawn to because there's sunshine and sea, but because there's a rich history and there's a rich culture and we come together and form these wonderful communities together, but yet we've had our problems and our challenges, and that's just part of the story too. I want to talk to you about some of the essays in this collection. How They See Us was written about the myth-making of Florida TV and movies, from crime shows like Miami Vice to dramas like Fresh Off the Boat and the reality TV of shows like Floribama Shore. NPR TV critic and St. Petersburg resident Eric Degen shares from the article he wrote for Forum in 2020. Too often, Florida is a lazy shortcut for storytellers, an odd place where working-class eccentrics and tropical heat come together to produce a bumper crop of bizarre Florida man crime stories. NBC's The Good Place, an excellent series that kept flashing back to knucklehead adventures by Manny Jacinto's not-too-sharp Jason Mendoza in Jacksonville, was a prime offender. It's tough for people in Hollywood to realize there are many different Floridas in one state, from the South Georgia feel of cities like Jacksonville and Pensacola to the theme park-filled tourist mecca of Orlando. Retirees from the Northeast packed into places like West Palm Beach or Fort Lauderdale and the multicultural melting pot of Miami. Florida is often a place where people come to start over, a place where people with big dreams and sometimes sketchy histories can leave the past behind and reinvent themselves. And the best TV shows set in Florida have managed to capture that vibe in one way or another while showcasing the stirring, unique landscapes that only the Sunshine State can offer. Nasheed, let me turn to you. What do you think TV, films, and other media contribute to how Floridians see themselves? I think it's a wonderful but also precarious reflection of the Florida dream, the American dream. If you look at Miami Vice, you have beach professional cops, but they also can blur the lines of how you interact with society. You do know if you are coming to Florida from somewhere else and you're going to call yourself a Floridian, are you a Floridian? You're blurring the lines just by your existence as a first or second generation. So there's opportunity to be yourself but also be authentic to your past or create something new. Where can you feel comfortable having a little boy fall in love with a dolphin on a television show, Flipper, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because of our landscape. Even when you look at Marjorie Rawlings and The Yearling, and that's a coming-to-age story of a little boy, but it's more than that. There is no government. The land, the environment, that's your government there. Mm -hmm. Where else can that happen in just a century? So you go from rural Florida, and it's beautiful and it's Pulitzer Prize winning, to an Emmy Award winning show that sensationalized two cops that blur the line. And so it can only happen in Florida. And those stories need to be captured, whether it's popular culture or this cultural relativism of a lens that someone takes their camera and just hones in to that perfect image of the little boy and the dolphin. And you talk about Florida in the yearling there, not just this work, but a lot of works of fiction about Florida, the state as a character, right? Like that's something that people are kind of grappling with, trying to wrap their arms around, trying to understand this place, but that's 
it's kind of hard to read in some ways. Yeah, and so more so than just the state as a character, there are elements of the state that are personified. The orange, the gulf, the water, the alligator. They are personified in a human view because they contribute to this Floridian identity outside of popular culture. So you can't say what is Florida without having that landscape as a backdrop to your story. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with Nasheed Maduin, Executive Director of Florida Humanities, and Jackie Levine, Editor of Once Upon a Time in Florida, about the organization's 50th anniversary and how the humanities can help us understand the complexities of the state. When we come back, what happens when the orange juice business dries up, Florida as a refuge for Cubans and other migrants, and more. Welcome back to Florida Matters. Our guests, Nasheed Majuan, Executive Director of Florida Humanities, and Jackie Levine, editor of the nonprofit's 50th anniversary book, Once Upon a Time in Florida. We're talking about the mission of Florida Humanities to help Floridians make sense of this complex, dynamic state by elevating stories about its culture, history, and literature. We're also hearing from contributors to the book, including WUSF's Delia Cologne, who wrote a profile of former U.S. Representative Ileana ross Lacenin, whose family sought refuge in Florida after fleeing communist Cuba, historian Gary Mormino, musing on the demise of the once-mighty citrus industry, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jack Davis on the beauty and bluster of the Gulf of Mexico. In 2014, University of South Florida professor and historian Gary Mormino wrote about the decline of the citrus industry in Florida in his forum essay, The Mighty Orange Faces Its Uncertain Future. Here is Mormino reading an excerpt. Florida was touted as a poor man's paradise. An acreage so small it seemed laughable in the Midwest, a manicured 10-acre orange grove in De Leon Springs or Dunedin summoned Jeffersonian republicanism and democratic romanticism. Beginning in the Gilded Age of the 1870s and cresting in the 1920s, orange fever brought trainloads, boatloads, and carloads of citizens eager to become gentlemen grove owners. Entire cities, Temple Terrace, Frostproof, and Howie in the Hills incorporated town and grove. To sell the fruit, roadside stands and packing houses proliferated around the orange belt, offering motorists sweet bliss and a free glass of OJ. Many small owners eventually quit, victims of overproduction, freezes, and fierce competition. A handful emerged triumphant like Doc Phillips, Antonio Rossi, and Ben Hill Griffin. But a story all too familiar, large corporations began swallowing Florida's baronial estates as well as its family groves. Beginning in the 1940s, competition bet wildly and successfully on Florida Groveland. Just as Phillips and Griffin personified the gritty individualism of the men who built dynasties one grove at a time, consolidated Citrus LP, Coca-Cola, and Coutrale Juices USA came to signify a new corporate presence more multinational and multi-conglomerate than personal and local. Now, that was written nearly 10 years ago. Jackie, what does it tell you about how fast Florida is changing when you think about the citrus industry now? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the themes throughout, how fast things change in Florida. Well, I can remember driving through citrus groves when you would go down south, and now there are rows and rows of houses and subdivisions, and that's just really very much emblematic of Florida and Florida's changes. Yeah, I mean, I've only been in the state for coming up on 13 years now, but 
you can see that change happening before your eyes, right? Places like Polk County, the groves are being transformed. With subdivisions with orange-type names, right? Right, so the legacy is there, but the trees are not anymore. That's an interesting point there because that story was written 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Think about the young Floridian 20 years from now. Why the orange? That's a good question for them to have. Why is the orange so iconic? So had it not been for this venue or some other outlets to tell the story or capture that story when orange was king or orange was queen, then that landscape or that perspective will be lost on that young Floridian in 2050. Former U.S. Representative Ileana ross Lacenon spoke with WUSF's Dalia Cologne in 2019 for Forum. Here, Cologne reads from Where Life Takes Flight about how the house her family rented in Miami after fleeing Fidel Castro's regime was more of a refugee center than anything else. In some ways, Florida wasn't so different from Cuba. There were mango and avocado trees in the yard, just as there had been in Havana. Ileana and her older brother, Henry, lived comfortably enough, thanks to the American jobs their parents had secured. We always had clean clothes, and we always had something good to eat, Ross Layton and remembers with a laugh. But not everything about Florida resembled her birthplace of Havana. For starters, there was the language barrier. These were the days before bilingual education, so young Ileana had to learn English as she fumbled through her days at the public Southside Elementary School. It was sink or swim, she says. At home, Spanish was still the dominant language, with her anti-Castro parents keeping tabs on the dictator via the radio. They also welcomed a steady stream of newly arrived Cuban refugees into their home. Their rented house, quote, was more of a refugee center than anything else, Ross Leitonen says with a laugh. There were people coming and going. This, in fact, is what Florida means to her. Now, Ross Leitonen talks about Florida as a place of refuge. And Nasheed, you write in the foreword to this volume about the challenge of defining home in Florida for people who've come here from other places. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this idea of the state as a place where people have some freedom to create their own narratives about it. You have Spanish, British, Spanish, Florida. You have two time zones, 67 counties. There's a vast amount of opportunity and a very low population at some point. And I think this article provides an understanding of refuge doesn't have to be flight from obscurity, flight from danger. Refuge could be an opportunity to craft a new narrative, paint a new picture, because your Florida soul waits. Another piece, uh, Sweetness of Memory, Bill Young snapshot of the life of South Beach photographer Andy Sweet offers a glimpse into South Beach Jewish community of the 70s and 80s. Jackie, let me ask you about this. What stood out for you about this essay? This one in particular, I have to say, was very near and dear to my heart. I grew up on Miami Beach. My grandfather ran a sort of residential hotel in South Beach during those years that Auntie Sweet photographed the last years of this Eastern European immigrant Jewish community. And it's a very poignant essay that Bill wrote capturing Auntie's work, photographing these people who many of whom had fled from Nazi Germany to the Northeast and then came down in their retirement, many of whom didn't have much money, but they came down to live out their sunset years Mm -hmm. in South Florida. 
But Auntie Sweet did an amazing job capturing the lives of these people in a way that wasn't condescending but was very respectful and very joyous. One of the interesting things to me about this particular story is the fact that even the fact that we now have some of these prints, it was a touch and go at one point, right? Because the archive of all of his negatives was lost and then somebody stumbled upon this trove of forgotten photographs so they're able to bring some of this back to life. Yes, it was very sad because Andy actually was murdered at South Beach. And then his photographs were lost. They had been in some storage facility, they thought, and there was some kind of flood or fire. I can't remember exactly all the details except that for the family, they were lost and it was like losing Auntie all over again. Mm. Later on, a son-in-law was looking for something else in another storage facility that the family had, and he came upon a box marked proofs, and he opened it up, and there was just this box of thousands of Andy's proofs. Not in great condition, but he spent many years restoring them. And since then, there's been a documentary done about Andy's work called The Last Resort. Multiple books, including one I just saw recently, Shtetl in the Sun. Mm -hmm. So I can't say it's a happy ending in many respects, but in one respect, Andy's work lives on. And it captures a time that without this work would be lost in many ways. This collection includes a 2011 essay called The Wondrous Gulf by Jack E. Davis. The Pinellas County native is currently an environmental history professor at the University of Florida. This article was part of the inspiration for his 2018 Pulitzer Prize winning non-fiction book, The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea. Let's hear a bit of Jack Davis reading from that now. Despite its power, its real and active presence, the Gulf retains a particular subtlety. As oceans go, it is not terribly big the ninth largest in the world, to be exact. Rather officiously, the International Hydrographic Organization has designated the Gulf as part of the Atlantic Ocean. This reduction to mere appendage obscures important differences, however. Gallon for gallon, the Atlantic cannot compete with the estuarine capacity of the Gulf, one of the world's great hatcheries of finfish, shellfish, and shrimp. By disposition, the Atlantic is often gray and disagreeable, whereas the Gulf is inclined to a cordial blue-green serenity. The Atlantic has less place than entity, stolidly expansive and disengaged. The Gulf is manifestly the opposite. It draws you in. Humbly, it calls you to partake in its essential self, to dangle bare feet off the edge of a sun-faded dock, to peer down at fish that, like window shoppers, scrutinize the dock's every piling, to look up as a brown pelican in a death drop crashes down upon an unsuspecting offering. None of this is to say that the Gulf is superior to the Atlantic or free of mood swings. Its warm, shallow waters, for example, naturally attract hurricanes that hurtle angrily in from the mother ocean. The argument here is that the Gulf is nothing less than a wonder in itself. In this essay, Davis talks about the connection between fishing in the Gulf and spring training, noting that Robert Hedges, manager of the St. Louis Browns, was so impressed by a fishing expedition that he moved his team here for spring training. It's just kind of one of the, I guess, sort of little surprises buried in this book. And I have a question for both of you. How much did you learn about Florida in the course of putting this anthology together, Nasheed? Oh, goodness. Putting the anthology together, I guess for me, was a result of going back through the archives, similar 
to the benefit that Jackie had going through the archives of Forum magazine and realizing, oh, the first Thanksgiving did not happen with the Puritans and the Pilgrims. It happened right here 56 years earlier in uh, St. Augustine. You know, I learned that Florida is highly likely one of the richest states, and I'm very proud of where I'm from, the Mississippi, Arkansas, Mississippi Delta, and all the, the music and the roots here, but I've fallen in love with Florida going through this project. Jackie. Going through it and going through the archives and actually in the whole process of editing forum, it's just full of surprises and full of connections. And so you see when you're talking about that the band came down here for fishing and ended up bringing a team down for spring training, that's the story of Florida in a sense because people would come here for one purpose, like for example in World War II, there was a lot of training going on of soldiers. And many of them ended up coming back after the war and settling in Florida. Actually, the same thing happened during the Civil War, that soldiers came to Florida and they said, hey, I, I like this. It's warm. It's beautiful, it's, et cetera. And they would come back. One of my favorite stories, this is a bit of a digression, but is about how Mary McLeod Bethune really saved the fortunes of Daytona Beach during World War II. Here she was, somebody who at that time couldn't sit at a lunch counter in town. She could not integrate a lunch counter, but when the city fathers realized the town was suffering because of, of the lack of tourism during World War II, they turned to Mary McLeod Bethune and said, hey, do you think you could do something for us? Do you think you could call the White House and see if we could get a Women's Army Auxiliary Corps training center here? And she got on the phone with President Roosevelt, and the next thing you know, there was the Women's Army Auxiliary Training in Daytona Beach, which really saved the fortunes. So I think these are the little surprising things that putting together the anthology as well as working on forum were things I found out. And speaking of fishing and sports, we have a story by Stephen Knoll that looks at how sports shape Florida. And one of the interesting things that I found out through that story, and that was, I think, one of the first stories I actually assigned when I became editor of Forum, was that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, not first in Brooklyn, but in Daytona Beach mm -hmm. when he was on a farm team for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So. There's just a lot about Florida that I think we as Floridians don't really know because oftentimes I think we're seeing the superficial and we're not really delving into what's beneath the surface. Jackie, any final words you would like to leave folks uh, about this volume or the, the work of Florida Humanities and, and your part in it? I would like to say that when I became affiliated with Florida Humanities in 2017, I think my education about Florida really begun, even though I lived here most of my life, because I began to see the depths and the richness of it. And working on this anthology was such a labor of love because I felt that I was getting this education that was just precious and without price. And the stories within, I hope people do pick it up and look at it because you will be surprised, I think, on nearly every page because that's what we were going for. We didn't want to be presenting cliches about Florida. We wanted to be presenting things about Florida that would explain the Florida experience and let you see 
Florida through the eyes of other Floridians, not just from today, but other days, and maybe help us appreciate even more the state that we call home and want to work to preserve it. We've been speaking with Jackie Levine, editor of Once Upon a Time in Florida. Jackie, thank you so much. Thank you. And Nasheed Madjuan, Executive Director of Florida Humanities. Nasheed, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's our show for this week. Our producer is Steve Newborn, production assistance from Mary Shedden, engineering support for this episode from Jackson Harp. Thanks also to WUFT. Find more on our website, wusf.org. Search for Florida Matters. Subscribe to the Florida Matters podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.